The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, my mission in life, she said, is not merely to survive, but to thrive, and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. Maya Angelou, thinker, activist, inspiration, poet, and supreme autobiographer, today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. Maya Angelou. And we have our little structure that worked so well for us with the Flaubert episode. We're going to use it here as well. Our list of 10 things to run through, cover an author's life and works. Last time we called it Kit Kermel Curl. We're so close to having a workable acronym. How about this? If we change childhood to origins and temperament to personality and relationships to others. Can we clean up the acronym that way? So we would have Opcomal Curl. That's getting there, right? Not quite the Persia gimmick. Getting close. Our 10 things will be origins, personality, career, others, motivation, literary context slash artistry, key work, Everything else, reception, legacy slash today. But first, does this mean anything to you? Check out the music here. A Milwaukee moose eggs on the goose and seals off eight straight. A St. Louis white rat and his running rabbits race for home. <laughs> Are you picturing the Brewers and the Cardinals and other baseball clips? When you hear that music, ah, it means something to me. It's the start of the show This Week in Baseball, which ran in the 1970s and 80s. I'm going to sound like an old man rhapsodizing about how enjoyable this show was before the internet when baseball was all I had, but you couldn't just watch clips whenever you wanted. I'd go to Brewers games a half a dozen times a year or so. I'd watch the World Series and I played baseball myself and I read books about baseball. Loved it. And then for 30 minutes a week, I got to watch Major League Baseball highlights on this show, This Week in Baseball. It started with with this music and with Mel Allen introducing something. Against the Phillies, nine times and nine games. A New York workhorse monkeys around and turns goat sheepishly. Okay. It didn't always reference animals, but it always referenced something. But the key was you got to see the highlights and you got to hear the music. It felt like a little 30 minutes that I could not miss. It was a high point of the week. I connected into the show like an alligator clip snapping itself onto the terminal of a battery. All juiced up. And it ended with this music. That's all for now, folks. See you next week on This Week in Baseball. Got to watch highlights. It looked like a ballet. Diving catches and massive swings. Sending the round ball rocketing into the outfit over the fence. Oh, it was so good. I watched that too. The credits rolling. Now, I'm not here to say that this show was important or meaningful necessarily, but it was meaningful to me. 
I'm here to talk about things that were important to us as children and how they have an outsized importance in our lives. A trip through the fields of Wisconsin at night while moths come flying out of nowhere and bombard our car like a blizzard. And my dad and me are alone in the car listening to some old-time radio. Everyone has moments like this. They stay with you for decades and are yours and yours alone. And every, once in a while, they return to your world and your life and your consciousness, and they matter. They set your mood. They remind you of things, feelings that you had. This Week in Baseball, the show, is one such thing for me. That show was so essential to my childhood. And so, imagine my intense delighted surprise when I received this message. Dear Jack, I was thinking about how to convey my appreciation for the history of literature when it occurred to me that I'd felt this way about a show once before as a boy. The opening music to your podcast gives rise to the same thrill I felt when I'd hear the opening notes in Mel Allen's voice on This Week in Baseball as a small-town kid in the late 1970s and early 1980s. It was half an hour of pure bliss that went by far too quickly. If you could see me staring transfixed at the screen, and if you could feel the sadness that filled me when Mel ended each show with See You Next Week on This Week in Baseball, then you'd know that no greater compliment could be paid. Keep up the great work, Jack. Dan. P.S. I have a bookshop in Prague where we listen to your program. So the next time you find yourself in the Czech Republic, do drop us a line. Oh, Dan, 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 Dan. I am also a small town kid in the late 1970s and early 1980s. I don't mean I was one. I mean, that's kind of who I still am, even, even now that I'm not a kid and I don't live in a small town and those decades are gone. And... Who am I? I'm doing this podcast now, working like a madman. My my grandmother used to talk about chickens with their heads cut off that she saw on the farm, and she would laugh at how they ran around. This was something she witnessed, and it made her laugh even to think about it years later. She told me about it more than once, and I was terrified, which also made her laugh. This powerful Swiss woman who ran a cheese factory, could not believe what a little softy her grandson was. Not like the hired men she used to feed every day, loaves of fresh bread and a cake or a pie every day for the men, she used to say. Anyway, she would no doubt laugh to see me today, scrambling to put this podcast out twice a week with all this frenzy, and I'm not totally sure why I'm doing it other than I worry that if I stop, I might fall over and die. Maybe that's why the chickens were running too. Not because they were dumb, headless and dumb, but because it, it was the last bit of intelligence their body still had. Anyway, Dan, you can imagine, given my own nostalgia for this week in baseball, how much your message resonated with me. I'm glad you're enjoying the history of literature. Maybe this is why I'm doing it, for the Dans of the world in those bookshops in Prague. Sounds like you are living the life. The Dans of the world who aren't kids anymore and who don't need baseball clips. They've grown up. They enjoy literature now and are glad to have even an episode put together by a headless chicken. Do you see how I've grown people? I started this show seven years ago as the guy in the ditch with a towel over his head, and now I'm a headless chicken running in circles while the Schweitzers laugh at me. That's progress. Thank you for your note, Dan. I never realized that saying, see you next time, as I do at the end of every episode... Never realized that might have come from See You Next Week on This Week in Baseball. But that show is in my bloodstream, to be sure. That feeling that it was over and I had to get up from the food blank. I was always watching, I was watching, I always watch television on the floor 
on a blanket that we called the food blanket, my sister and I, because my mom would lay it down so that we could eat without getting crumbs on the carpet. We'd eat our pancakes down there on Saturday mornings. And it was a nice little Hungarian blanket that my great-grandmother had given to our family. And guess what? We never used that blanket to cover up with my sister and I. We found that a little bit disgusting. It was a food blanket. Grown-ups would use it, not us. Anyway, knowing I had to get on with the rest of my Saturday, I felt a twinge of loss and disappointment, but I did know that Mel would be there for me once again after seven more sleeps. So we've got to move forward, people. This is all going to come back, though. Don't worry. Maya Angelou, what an amazing life she had and what an amazing career. The upcomical of Maya Angelou after this. Since me man done gone and went, the landlord come to me for the rent. I can't afford even 10%. Since me man done gone and went, I never knew how... Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Icebox to defrosted. I just like a babe that's lost it. Since me man done gone and went, I'm feeling so disgusted. Me rusted hard. Maya Angelou was born Marguerite Johnson on April 4th, 1928. It was a portentous date, or it proved to be later, when she was working for Dr. Martin Luther King. He was assassinated on her 40th birthday as we will see throughout her long and incredibly eventful life again and again, Maya Angelou's path crisscrossed with America's touchstone events. She turns up again and again. Somehow the stars keep aligning, and there she is in the light. Light is an important trope for her. Light and truth. As a grown-up, She's fearless and unflinching in her honesty and courageous and bold in her positions and her actions. She's irrepressible. She overcomes. But as a girl, she was vulnerable. She was born in St. Louis to a doorman and a nurse with a beloved brother, Bailey, just a year older. The two children were close. Their relationship forged in the crucible of an incredible journey. Their parents had a volatile calamitous marriage. That's her word for it. That's Maya's word for it. Calamitous. When the children were just three and four years old, they were sent from Long Beach, California, where their parents had relocated, to Stamps, Arkansas by train, by themselves. Their father had paid a porter to look after them, but the porter got off in Arizona. They had tickets in their pocket and a note providing their names and describing their destination, three and four years old, all across the country. Apparently, this was not that uncommon, as Southern Black families sent kids north to live with relatives who had made it up there, and sometimes Northern families sent 
young children back to southern grandparents or other relatives when things in the north weren't working out. Even so, it was formative for young Marguerite and Bailey. The two had a closeness that only siblings can share. It was in some ways a soft landing. Once they got there, their grandmother was successful and formidable, a real presence in the community, a store owner who was successful even during the Depression thanks to her organizational skills and hard work. She ran the store and also ran a kind of restaurant for uh, working men for lunchtime meals. And Maya later wrote, she had the magical skill of being able to always be in two places at once. In other ways, the childhood was tough. Both Maya and Bailey had a hard time dealing with the absence of their parents. Not just their absence, but the seeming rejection. When out of the blue, the two of them got Christmas gifts one year, they separately started to cry because it was easier to imagine, it had been easier to imagine that their parents had died than that they had sent them away. How can they be celebrating Christmas without their children? They thought, what did we do wrong to be sent here? I'm going to foreshadow just a little and say that much of what we know and remember about Maya Angelou's childhood comes from her astonishing autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, which starts with that trip across the country and goes up until Angelou is about 17. We'll have more from we'll have more about that book when we get to 1969 in our story when she's looking back and writing this book, which is the first of seven memoirs that she wrote. After a few years in Arkansas, watching the men who picked cotton and lived in a rigged game, a status that years later made her boil with anger, even to hear it mentioned, her parents re-entered her life. The family then moved to St. Louis, and she was living with her mother and stepfather, and her mother's mean brothers, famous for being mean, who beat up white people as well as black people without thinking much of it, and who liked each other so well they had no desire or need to make friends with anyone else. Maya, I'll call her Maya to keep things easier for us, although she wouldn't take that name for a while. She was still Marguerite at this point. Maya went through an agonizing ordeal soon after. This might be difficult for some listeners to hear, so please take caution accordingly. When she was seven... Her stepfather abused her sexually, and then he raped her. He threatened her to keep her silent. If you tell anyone, he said, I'll kill Bailey. That strikes me as especially awful. He's not saying, I'll kill you. Maybe because he's aware that after what he's done, she might want to die. She was in pain. She's suffering. She's confused feels guilty and is traumatized. She's just a child. So he says, I'll kill Bailey. Putting that load on her young and small shoulders. Maybe for her at that time, losing her brother, knowing that she had caused her brother to be killed would be a fate worse than death. I won't tell, she says. But she's... Injured, she falls ill, and Bailey discovers that something awful has happened to her. And when she's in the hospital, he says to her, you have to tell us, or this could happen to someone else too. Tell us what happened. Who did this? And then she reveals what her stepfather has done. Bailey tells the grown-ups, and now the stepfather is arrested, and she's on trial. I'm going to read a bit from the trial when we get to the point where we talk about I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, because it's so direct and powerful. She's cross-examined by the stepfather's lawyer, and she testifies, feeling conflicted because the man, the stepfather, has made her lie. Parenthetical explanation here. He had abused her a few times before the rape, and she never told anyone about it. So she lied to, to say that he hadn't touched her before, that that hadn't happened, knowing that she'd be accused of being a liar for never having told anyone about it, and that it might jeopardize the prosecution, and she also felt guilty that she had kept that secret from Bailey. 
She's just a child. She's feeling a heaviness in her throat with the lie, which is kind of a foreshadowing because what happens next is another one of those critical moments for her life and her legacy. Her stepfather is sentenced. He's found guilty. He's sentenced to one year and one day, a shockingly short sentence, but it gets worse. He gets out the same afternoon as the trial. And then, soon afterwards, he's found dead. Her uncles probably killed him. Young Maya Angelou is so distraught at the events, traumatized by the abuse, guilty about the death, afraid of the situation, afraid of the power of her voice. Her voice, naming the man, had led to his death. All this overwhelms her and she stops speaking. For five years, she says nothing. Bailey sometimes spoke for her. She trained herself to focus on sounds and to keep herself mute. In the end, it was poetry that brought her out of it. She had always loved poetry and stories. She became a fan of Edgar Allan Poe and Horatio Alger stories, and Langston Hughes, and James Weldon Johnson, and lots of other writers with Shakespeare at the top of her list. And she had a teacher who encouraged her and who told her, if you truly love poetry, you have to speak it. And so she did. And in some ways, that's the key to understanding her poetry and her other writings and her life too. Once she regained her voice, she didn't give it up. She used it. She eventually made her way to California again to live with her mother in Oakland, and she worked a series of jobs. She was the first black female streetcar conductor in San Francisco. I've told this story before, I think, how she arrived early every day, so admiring the uniforms and so desperate to get the job that she just kept showing up until finally they gave in. It's in our Writers at Work episode. Mike and I drafted 10 Writers at Work, including some good ones, Jack London's stint as a, as a pirate and so on. But we could have chosen 10 jobs by Maya Angelou. She had so many. They were so interesting. She was 16 when she became a streetcar conductor. Now, where are we in our upcoming curl? We've moved through personality, sort of. We'll have more on that later. And we're on career now. She has an astonishing range of professional activities. It seems like she could do anything she set out to do. Not only did she do these things, she thrived at them at very high levels. Some of them. I'm not even sure who to compare her with. I'm just going to list them off. Streetcar conductor, prostitute, madam, We'll talk about this later. Professional dancer, part of a dance team with Alvin Ailey, who later became very famous as a choreographer. This is where she got the name Maya Angelou. She had a, a uh, let me back up. She had a son at the age of 17. At 20, she married a Greek electrician and sailor, an aspiring musician named Tosh Angelos. Her nickname had always been Rita or Reedy, or as her brother had called her, Maya as in my sister, Maya sister. Maya Angelos then, or Maya Angelou, was a better stage name for a Calypso dancer than Marguerite Johnson or Rita Johnson. It fit. It fit the style of her dancing. And she could sing, too. She got a part in the opera Porgy and Bess and toured Europe, Multiple countries, learning new languages in every country she visited. Now she was writing Calypso songs, and she recorded an album. We heard a little bit of that at the break. We are now up to 1959, and this lover of poetry, Maya Angelou, now is still mostly contributing through song and song lyrics and dancing. But she met a novelist and moved to New York I think I skipped over her stint as a fry cook, another job she had. Marketing research, she did that for a while too. She met she did a lot of things. She met a novelist, uh, said that. She met a novelist, moved to New York. Oh, in New York, she studied dance with Martha Graham. 
<laughs> she seems to have found all of the 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 superstars. She started writing and acting. She married a South African dissident briefly and moved to Cairo and Ghana, where she wrote for publications. She met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who asked her to be the Northern Coordinator of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She performed in a play with Cicely Tyson and James Earl Jones. She met James Baldwin in Paris. While she was in Ghana, she met Malcolm X. And in 1965, she came back to the U.S., to help Malcolm X start a new organization dedicated to civil rights. But he was killed later that year. Devastated, she moved back to Los Angeles to resume her singing career. And then she was in Watts, working as a marketing researcher when she saw the riots. She wrote plays. Martin Luther King asked her to organize a march. And she was going to, but before she could... He was assassinated. She wrote a 10-part document, no experience in this, but she wrote a 10-part documentary series about blues music and the African heritage of black Americans and the connection between the two. A 10-part series for a television network, a forerunner of PBS. She's now 40, already having lived an incredibly full life and she hasn't even written the book that would make her internationally famous. That came next, which suggests to me it's time for us to take a breath, take a break, but also to note that she later, we're not done with her career and her professional uh, endeavors. She became a Tony Award-winning actress. She was in Roots, the play, and the TV series. She married a Welshman, who had once been married to Jermaine Greer. She wrote songs for Roberta Flack. She wrote movie scores and TV scripts and directed and produced plays, and she was a pioneer in the film industry, authoring the first screenplay produced by a black woman. I mean, the first screenplay by a black woman that was produced. In the 1970s, she happened to meet a barely-known anchorwoman in Baltimore, she decided to mentor her. Perhaps you've heard of that woman, that news anchor. Her name, Oprah Winfrey. She started winning prizes. Maya Angelou did, and awards and honorary degrees, more than 50 of them she received. Her book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, was the first of seven memoirs or autobiography she wrote. She wrote books of poetry and she went on speaking tours. She had a bus that she used specifically for these speaking tours. She, she, I said this, 50 honorary degrees. She went around collecting those and she was a professor at Wake Forest and taught many different subjects. She lived in the South then at this point in her life intentionally to try to grapple with her past. In 1993, in, uh, incoming President Bill Clinton asked her to deliver a poem at his inauguration. Became a bestseller. She directed a feature film starring Wesley Snipes. She won a Grammy for recorded poetry. President Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2011. She died in 2014 at the age of 86. I've talked before about the small category of writers who have made it onto a postage stamp. You probably won't be surprised to hear that she is one of those writers, both in the United States and in Ghana. But Maya Angelou's power and fame are kind of otherworldly. We could say that literally otherworldly. They named a crater on Mercury after her. I'm talking about something else, too. They didn't just put Maya Angelou on a stamp. They put her on a quarter. That's, that's a rare category of fame for a writer to manage to achieve. Okay, let's take a break. And then we will dive into her writing, especially I, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and some of her poetry. More Dr. Maya Angelou after this. In the park I pitched me tent The last half dollar will soon be spent Since me man done gone and went 
if your well runs dry, that proverb makes me heave a sigh. He never even stopped to say goodbye. Since we man done gone and went, I'm down to just 50 cents. Okay, our categories have blurred together, I'm finding, but there's a reason for that. So much of her life, her relationships with others, her motivation, her career, all the things on my list, everything else. So much of this great grand figure we call Maya Angelou blurs together. It's art and writing and life as one. She writes artistically about her life. Her life is one of her artistic writings. She's built up to it. She did it. And she lived in the aftermath. Why was she so successful? What's important about her? from a literature perspective. Formally, she's not a particularly innovative or technically accomplished poet. It's not really poetry to be read on the page and scrutinized and admired. It doesn't dazzle with syntax or diction or the cleverness or complexity of its thought. Sometimes it seems even a little obvious, a little on the nose with its rhymes, more like a song lyric than the kind of poetry we're used to seeing in anthologies of great verse. But that's the wrong approach to take when reading her poetry. Her poetry is meant to be read aloud. It's like the music that people write for different reasons. Some people write a song with a guitar or piano meant to be heard in a small setting like a cafe. Or they write a song for musicians to show what music can do. Some people write songs meant to fill stadiums. In poetry, some people write to resonate with one reader. Maya Angelou's poetry reads like it's going to be delivered as part of a speaking tour, as it often was. And as with song lyrics, the performance is part of the plan. It's part of the project. This isn't a bad thing, by the way, and it's not a failing. And in fact, it's consistent with Maya Angelou and who she was. This is the little girl who didn't talk for five years, who then found her voice through poetry. She wasn't going to write obscure works for some dusty library shelf, she was going to sing. That's the Maya Angelou project, a voice coming through, emerging, I might say, or cutting through, whether it's through poetry or autobiography or songs or her acting or the words of wisdom that she gathered and put together. She has cookbooks and children's books. She gave interviews all with that voice, the voice of someone who overcame a lot and is still overcoming, the voice of someone who bears witness, the voice of someone who's known pain and pleasure, a voice channeling slave narratives and sermons and songs of the African-American experience, the voice that's willing to be honest and unflinching, a voice devoted to delivering truth. When she was a young woman, she made money as a sex worker. Times were tough. This was a solution. There are many ways to prostitute oneself, she said later. Hmm, we all have a price, don't we? Lots of people, fans of Angelou's works especially, tone that down. They skip over it in obituaries and retrospectives. They minimize the importance of what she did to her life and leave or leave it out altogether. They find ways to to refer to it without really saying it. Well, Maya Angelou was unapologetic. This happened to her. She did it. She chose to do it and so be it. It's part of her life and so it goes on the page. When she covered that period of her life in her second memoir when she was already famous, she had a lot to lose. She knew she'd be read and scrutinized but she put it in the book anyway. I had the experience once of helping a man to write his autobiography, and he wrote it warts and all, and I thought it had the potential to help lots of people. I was eager for him to publish it, and in the end, he didn't want to. Once they start naming buildings after you, you start thinking about your legacy and how your family will think of you and your reputation in the eyes of the world. It's not easy to say plainly that you did things that other people would find immoral or that other people will assume you'd be embarrassed to reveal. You might think it would risk your spot on that postage stamp. 
Maya Angelou didn't think that way. She didn't approach her life or her writing that way. And listen to her explanation of it. This is when she was asked about this second memoir, the follow-up to I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Gather Together in My Name. And she's talking here about her work as a madam and a prostitute. And she says, quote, I wrote about my experiences because I thought too many people tell young folks I never did anything wrong. Who? Moi? Never I. I have no skeletons in my closet. In fact, I have no closet. They lie like that. And then young people find themselves in situations and they think, damn, I must be a pretty bad guy. My mom or dad never did anything wrong. They can't forgive themselves and go on with their lives, end quote. Think about that. Think about what that means. Maya Angelou had a child, a son. But in this quote, she's looking out for all children, all young people, all of us. She's willing to sacrifice her privacy and the managed reputation that celebrities often carefully manage. She's willing to sacrifice that on the altar of honesty and truth. And she's doing it in the spirit of generosity and compassion, empathy for people she's never met. I'll be honest, she says. I'll confess, not because it will help me, but because it might help you. Let's hear from I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. We're going to hear a couple of passages. I could choose a hundred. The book is so rich with anecdotes and compelling passages. I've chosen a couple. The first is from, we'll start right in chapter one. This is after she and Bailey have made their trip across the country. They now find a home in a kind of adventure land, the general store run by her grandmother. You know how stores are for little kids. They love it, right? There's so many different things in there to look at and to pick up and and wonder about. Everything is kind of a toy. She calls it a fun house of things. The store was also the center of black life in that community, a barbershop on Saturdays, a place where troubadours traveling through the South would stop outside and sit on a bench and play juice harps and cigar box guitars. And then we hear this passage. Each year, I watch the field across from the store turn caterpillar green, then gradually frosty white. I knew exactly how long it would be before the big wagons would pull into the front yard and load on the cotton pickers at daybreak to carry them to the remains of slavery's plantations. During the picking season, my grandmother would get out of bed at four o'clock, she never used an alarm clock, and creak down to her knees and chant in a sleep-filled voice, Our Father, thank you for letting me see this new day. Thank you that you didn't allow the bed I lay on last night to be my cooling board, nor my blanket, my winding sheet. Guide my feet this day along the straight and narrow, and help me to put a bridle on my tongue. Bless this house and everybody in it. Thank you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before she had quite arisen, she called our names and issued orders and pushed her large feet into homemade slippers and across the bare, lye-washed wooden floor to light the coal oil lamp. The lamplight in the store gave a soft, make-believe feeling to our world, which made me want to whisper and walk about on tiptoe. The odors of onions and oranges and kerosene had been mixing all night and wouldn't be disturbed until the wooded slat was removed from the door and the early morning air forced its way in with the bodies of people who had walked miles to reach the pickup place. Sister, I'll have two cans of sardines. I'm going to work so fast today I'm going to make you look like you standing still. Let me have a hunk of cheese and some soda crackers. Just give me a couple of them fat peanut patties. That would be from a picker who was taking his lunch. The greasy brown paper sack was stuck behind the bib of his overalls. He'd use the candy as a snack before the noon sun called the workers to rest. 
In those tender mornings, the store was full of laughing, joking, boasting, and bragging. One man was going to pick 200 pounds of cotton and another 300. Even the children were promising to bring home full bits and six bits. The champion picker of the day before was the hero of the dawn. If he prophesied that the cotton in today's field was going to be sparse and stick to the bowls like glue, every listener would grunt a hearty agreement. The sound of the empty cotton sacks dragging over the floor and the murmurs of waking people were sliced by the cash register as we rang up the five-cent sales. If the morning sounds and smells were touched with the supernatural, the late afternoon had all the features of the normal Arkansas life. In the dying sunlight, the people dragged, rather than their empty cotton sacks. Brought back to the store, the pickers would step out of the backs of trucks and fold down, dirt disappointed, to the ground. No matter how much they had picked, it wasn't enough. Their wages wouldn't even get them out of debt to my grandmother, not to mention the staggering bill that waited on them at the white commissary downtown. The sounds of the new morning had been replaced with grumbles about cheating houses, weighted scales, snakes, skimpy cotton, and dusty rows. In later years, I was to confront the stereotyped picture of gay, song-singing cotton pickers with such inordinate rage that I was told even by fellow blacks that my paranoia was embarrassing. But I had seen the fingers cut by the mean little cotton bowls, and I had witnessed the backs and shoulders and arms and legs resisting any further demands. Some of the workers would leave their sacks at the store to be picked up the following morning, but a few had to take them home for repairs. I winced, to picture them sewing the coarse material under a coal oil lamp with fingers stiffening from the day's work. In too few hours, they would have to walk back to Sister Henderson's store, get vittles and load again onto the trucks. Then they would face another day of trying to earn enough for the whole year with the heavy knowledge that they were going to end the season as they started it. Without the money or credit necessary, to sustain a family for three months. In cotton-picking time, the late afternoons revealed the harshness of black southern life, which in the early morning had been softened by nature's blessing of grogginess, forgetfulness, and the soft lamplight. The prose in that passage is remarkable, how readable and compelling it is. We feel her as a young child, marveling at people, seeing their ups and downs, seeing their foibles in the morning, the braggadocio, the, the hard circumstances, the desperation, the unjust treatment. It's nostalgia and so on, but it's deeper, it's richer. I started this episode with some nostalgia for This Week in Baseball, but it didn't go anywhere other than to humbly thank a listener who shared that experience with me. That's all it was trying to do wasn't attempting to be art or literature. Angelou's project is different. She was dared by her editor and James Baldwin and the cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer and his wife to write autobiography as literature. Can it be done? Her project is not mere nostalgia. It's not just recording events that happened to her, walking through it like the entry of an encyclopedia. It's nostalgia and memory that manages to pull in race and class and the persistence of humanity in the face of overwhelming odds. Small triumphs on the way to ultimate defeats, moving us, engaging us on an emotional and intellectual level. The voice she uses is personal, but it's also vast in ambition and scope. It was, in its way, innovative in 1969, though it also grew out of a tradition. Here's what Angelou says about the voice that she found in writing her autobiographies. Quote, Once I got into it, I realized I was following a tradition established by Frederick Douglass, the slave narrative, speaking in the first-person singular, talking about the first-person plural, always saying I, meaning we. 
And what a responsibility trying to work with that form, the autobiographical mode, to change it, to make it bigger, richer, finer, and more inclusive in the 20th century has been a great challenge for me. End quote. That's a great way to view her approach to writing an autobiography and a great way to view her. She's bigger, richer, finer. She uses the I, but means we. And she's a force for good. Our next passage is a harrowing one. Again, listeners, please be advised, this deals with sexual assault and rape. We won't read the passage of the rape itself, which she details both the abuse that leads up to it and then the rape. It's very difficult to read and important to read. We won't read it here. We're going to read from the aftermath in the courtroom. Here, the personal is very personal. This tells us a lot about who Maya Angelou was and who she is, and by that I mean who she was as a young girl and who she is as the writer telling us the story of her life, her recollection, her observations, her honesty, and her irrepressible spirit are all here. The saying that people who have nothing to do become busybodies is not the only truth. Excitement is a drug, and people whose lives are filled with violence are always wondering where the next fix is coming from. The court was filled. Some people even stood behind the church-like benches in the rear. Overhead fans moved with the detachment of old men. Grandmother Baxter's clients were there in gay and flippant array. The gamblers in pinstriped suits and their makeup-deep women whispered to me out of blood-red mouths that now I knew as much as they did. I was eight and grown. Even the nurses in the hospital had told me that now I had nothing to fear. The worst is over for you, they had said. So I put the words in all the smirking mouths. I sat with my family. Bailey couldn't come, and they rested still on the seats like solid, cold, gray tombstones, thick and forevermore unmoving. Poor Mr. Freeman twisted in his chair to look empty threats over to me. He didn't know that he couldn't kill Bailey, and Bailey didn't lie to me. What was the defendant wearing? That was Mr. Freeman's lawyer. I don't know. You mean to say this man raped you and you don't know what he was wearing? He snickered as if I had raped Mr. Freeman. Do you know if you were raped? A sound pushed in the air of the court. I was sure it was laughter. I was glad that Mother had let me wear the navy blue winter coat with brass buttons. Although it was too short and the weather was typical St. Louis hot, the coat was a friend that I hugged to me in the strange and unfriendly place. Was that the first time the accused touched you? The question stopped me. Mr. Freeman had surely done something very wrong, but I was convinced that I had helped him to do it. I didn't want to lie, but the lawyer wouldn't let me think, so I used silence as a retreat. Did the accused try to touch you before the time he, or rather you say, he raped you? I couldn't say yes and tell them how he had loved me once for a few minutes and how he had held me close before he thought I had peed in the bed. My uncles would kill me and Grandmother Baxter would stop speaking as she often did when she was angry. And all those people in the court would stone me as they had stoned the harlot in the Bible and Mother, who thought I was such a good girl, would be so disappointed but most important, there was Bailey. I had kept a big secret from him. Marguerite, answer the question. Did the accused touch you before the occasion on which you claim he raped you? Everyone in the court knew that the answer had to be no. Everyone except Mr. Freeman and me. I looked at his heavy face, trying to look as if he would have liked me to say no. I said no. 
The lie lumped in my throat and I couldn't get air. How I despised the man for making me lie. Old, mean, nasty thing. Old, black, nasty thing. The tears didn't soothe my heart as they usually did. I screamed, old, mean, dirty thing, you. Old, dirty, old thing. Our lawyer brought me off the stand and to my mother's arms. The fact that I had arrived at my desired destination by lies made it less appealing to me. Mr. Freeman was given one year and one day, but he never got a chance to do his time. His lawyer, or someone, got him released that very afternoon. In the living room, where the shades were drawn for coolness, Bailey and I played Monopoly on the floor. I played a bad game because I was thinking how I would be able to tell Bailey how I had lied, and even worse for our relationship, kept a secret from him. Bailey answered the doorbell because grandmother was in the kitchen. A tall white policeman asked for Mrs. Baxter. Had they found out about the lie? Maybe the policeman was coming to put me in jail because I had sworn in the Bible that everything I said would be the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. The man in our living room was taller than the sky and whiter than my image of God. He just didn't have the beard. Mrs. Baxter, I thought you ought to know. Freeman's been found dead on the lot behind the slaughterhouse. Softly, as if she were discussing a church program, she said, Poor man. She wiped her hands on the dish towel and just as softly asked, Do they know who did it? The policeman said, Seems like he was dropped there. Some say he was kicked to death. Grandmother's color only rose a little. Tom, thanks for telling me. Poor man. Well, maybe it's better this way. He was a mad dog. Would you like a glass of lemonade? Or some beer? Although he looked harmless, I knew he was a dreadful angel, counting out my many sins. No thanks, Mrs. Baxter. I'm on duty. Gotta be getting back. Well, Tell your ma that I'll be over when I take up my beer and remind her to save some kraut for me. And the recording angel was gone. He was gone, and a man was dead because I lied. Where was the balance in that? One lie surely wouldn't be worth a man's life. Bailey could have explained it all to me, but I didn't dare ask him. Obviously, I had forfeited my place in heaven forever, and I was as gutless as the doll I had ripped to pieces ages ago. Even Christ himself turned his back on Satan. Wouldn't he turn his back on me? I could feel the evilness flowing through my body and waiting, pent up, to rush off my tongue if I tried to open my mouth. I clamped my teeth shut. I'd hold it in. If it escaped... Wouldn't it flood the world and all the innocent people? Grandmother Baxter said, Reedy and Junior, you didn't hear a thing. I never want to hear this situation, nor that evil man's name mentioned in my house again. I mean that. She went back into the kitchen to make apple strudel for my celebration. Even Bailey was frightened. He sat all to himself, looking at a man's death, a kitten looking at a wolf not quite understanding it, but frightened all the same. In those moments, I decided that although Bailey loved me, he couldn't help. I had sold myself to the devil, and there could be no escape. The only thing I could do was to stop talking to people other than Bailey, instinctively or somehow. I knew that because I loved him so much, I'd never hurt him, but if I talked to anyone else, that person might die too. Just my breath, carrying my words out, might poison people, and they'd curl up and die like the black fat slugs that only pretended. I had to stop talking. I discovered that to achieve perfect personal silence, all I had to do was to attach myself leech-like to sound. I began to listen to everything. I probably hoped that after I had heard all the sounds, really heard them and packed them down deep in my ears, the world would be quiet around me. I walked into rooms where people were laughing, their voices hitting the walls like stones, 
and I simply stood still, in the midst of the riot of sound. After a minute or two, silence would rush into the room from its hiding place, because I had eaten up all the sounds. In the first weeks, my family accepted my behavior as a post-rape, post-hospital affliction. Neither the term nor the experience was mentioned in Grandmother's house, where Bailey and I were again staying. They understood that I could talk to Bailey, but to no one else. Then came the last visit from the visiting nurse, and the doctor said I was healed. That meant that I should be back on the sidewalks playing handball or enjoying the games I had been given when I was sick. When I refused to be the child they knew and accepted me to be, I was called impudent, and my muteness, sullenness. For a while I was punished for being so uppity that I wouldn't speak, and then came the thrashings, given by any relative who felt himself offended. Hmm. Before we leave my Angelou, I do want to read some of her poetry. This is called Caged Bird. Caged Bird, by the way, is not a term that was original with Maya Angelou. Caged Bird came to Maya Angelou from the works of black American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who used a bird in a cage as symbolic of a slave in chains. These were his lines from his poem, Sympathy. I know why the caged bird sings, ah me. When his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and would be free, it is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. Maya Angelou took this line for the title of her masterpiece, the one she wrote by getting up at five in the morning to start the process of digging deep into herself to turn her life and her painful past into art. Writing 10 or ten to 12 pages during the day and editing them down to three or four at night. I needed a ritual, she later said, to enchant myself. She played solitaire before she wrote to put herself in the right frame of mind. It took her an hour sometimes. But then it was a delicious feeling, so delicious, she said, to be in that space of truth-telling. It wasn't cathartic, exactly, but it was, she said, a relief to tell the truth. Sometimes that's all we have. Sometimes that's all we need. That was her title. I know why the caged bird sings. And she wrote a poem called Caged Bird 2. Caged Bird. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees, and the fat worms waiting on a dawn-bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams, his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream, his wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. Maya Angelou wrote beautifully about a lot of things, her own life, her brother. She wrote about being a woman, a sexual woman, which scared men sometimes. She wrote about being confident, about staying positive, about battling injustice, 
about living in the city. She wrote occasional poems for inaugurations and other events. She wrote aphorisms, perhaps none more famous or lasting as the one that gets quoted again and again. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. But it's her singing that gets us the power of her voice. The caged bird whose tune is heard on the distant hill. Maya Angelou felt the imprisonment of oppression and pain and evil and tight-lipped silence. But when she opened her mouth, she delivered the sound of freedom. She was quiet a long time. But when she opened her mouth, finally, she sang. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Dan, the bookshop owner in Prague, and my thanks to Maya Angelou, that wonderful spirit. Try to be a rainbow in someone's cloud, she said once. Words to live by. We have some good things coming up, a special treat for Thanksgiving we're putting together. I can't wait for that. But before we get there, I think we'll have a deep dive into a novel that you all know. It has three words in the title. That's your hint. Speaking of hints and rainbows and clouds and, well, who knows where I'm going with that. (laughs) Smooth transition. Nowhere to go. Bridge to nowhere. I'd better quit while I'm only a little behind. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.